From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Today, NBC News correspondent and MSNBC host Katie Turr. In her new memoir, she reflects on her childhood, family relationships, and professional career. Turr grew up around cameras and microphones. Her parents ran a breaking news service in Los Angeles, shooting video from the helicopter her dad piloted. Turr writes about her difficult relationship with her father, who she says was talented and charismatic, but had a volatile temper and was at times abusive. In 2013, her dad came out as a trans woman. Also, journalist Linda Villarosa talks about why black people in the United States have poorer health outcomes than whites. She used to think it was poverty, but she says there's something else, racism. Villarosa says studies show the stress of living with racism undermines health, and there's evidence of bias in healthcare delivery. My first guest, MSNBC anchor Katie Turp, was last on Fresh Air to talk about her book, Unbelievable, which chronicled her experience covering Donald Trump's first presidential campaign. Her new book is a more personal memoir in which she reflects on her childhood, family relationships, and professional career. In some ways, she seemed destined to be a broadcast journalist. Here she is as a little girl being asked to pretend she's a reporter. Show me how to talk like. Pretend you're doing a, 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 a report, a radio report for KNX and the helicopter. Um, a fire broke down in, in, in San Diego. That clip of Little Katie is from the 2020 documentary about her parents, who ran a breaking news service in Los Angeles that got huge TV scoops, often shooting video from a helicopter. Katie's dad was then known as Bob Turr. That was before her dad came out as a trans woman in 2013. She's now Zoe Turr. Katie's difficult and evolving relationship with her dad is one of the central themes of the new memoir. Katie Turr is a correspondent for NBC News and anchor of Katie Turr Reports, which airs 2 p.m. weekdays on MSNBC. Her new book is Rough Draft a memoir. Well, Katie Turr, welcome back to Fresh Air. Dave, thank you so much for having me. You know, most of it, I mean, I grew up in South Texas, and we never, the thought that I would know anybody who was on TV or in the news or in the movies was just unthinkable. That's true for a lot of us. Your childhood was a little different, wasn't it? Well, we grew up with parents who were on TV in the news, and so we knew everybody in their lives. And we also, my brother and I, grew up at the airport in Santa Monica. And at this airport were tons of celebrities, Harrison Ford, Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno. The hangar next to my parents' helicopter hangar was a photographer, and he'd have celebrities over to photograph. Occasionally, he'd have a Playboy model or two, which thrilled my brother. So we, we grew up in, um, in the belly of Hollywood. So tell us about your parents' business, you know, how it started, what they did. So my parents started a business called Los Angeles News Service, and they chose that name to sound authoritative because at the time, my mom and my dad couldn't get press badges from the California Highway Patrol. And they, because they couldn't do it, because nobody took them seriously, because I think my dad was 20 and my mom was 25, maybe even younger. Actually, yes, younger. Um, They decided that if they can't get the CHP to recognize them as independent journalists, they were going to start their own journalism company. So they did. 
They started Los Angeles News Service, and it started out with them going to overnight stories, shooting tape of the things that news stations weren't shooting um, because they were off overnight. So they would gather that video, and they would sell it to the news stations in the morning. And from there, they expanded. They they hired their own reporters, their own entertainment report, and they um, sold this, this material to stations all around the country. And then from there, they got the even bigger idea to cover news from the air because Los Angeles is so sprawling. It's impossible to get to a story in a fair amount of time. If there is a fire, it's often out by the time you get there because of all the traffic. And they said, well, we can do this faster and better from the air. They got a plane. Didn't really work so well on a plane. And then my dad walked into a couple of helicopter companies and said, you should lease me a helicopter. And they said, how much money do you have? And he said, I've got nothing. (laughs) But I've got this business plan. And one of them laughed him out of the office. And the other one bit. And so they leased him a helicopter on nothing. And so all of the iconic video that you remember from the 80s and 90s, Almost all of it my parents shot. They got OJ on that slow-speed pursuit, the Reginald Denny beating in the L.A. riots. He's the guy that got pulled out of the red gravel truck and a brick thrown at his head. All of the police pursuits, all of the fires in Malibu, Madonna giving a helicopter the finger on her wedding day to Sean Penn while she was giving my dad the finger. (laughs) They got it all. Took a lot of hustle, no doubt. Um, and, and your dad eventually became a pilot. And, and so they would go up as a team. What, your, your dad would fly. He would sometimes give live reports, I gather. What was your mom's role? So my dad was the pilot and the reporter. He was the voice Um, the brand of Los Angeles News Service. And my mom um, was the camera woman. She would, before they got a gyro-stabilized camera that was mounted on the front of the helicopter for many, many years, she would literally hang out of the helicopter over the skids with a beta cam, which is, you know, 40, 50 pounds, on her shoulder and just shoot video below her. So she would dangle out over 500 feet in the ground, over the ground, and follow as the police chased cars down the freeways or Malibu burned down or there was a shootout in North Hollywood. And they were a really good team. You know, my dad was all of the go, 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 go. And my mom um, listened to the scanners. Uh, she knew which places to watch. She was the the head of the operation. If my dad was uh, the, how, how do I say this, the chutzpah. <laughs> Right, right, right. And your mom was actually afraid of heights before this started, right? She's still afraid of heights. Wow. She can't get close to the edge on a cliff. She can't get close to a window and a high rise. But she said, and I have the same feeling, she said that as long as she was looking through the viewfinder of the camera, she felt detached. Like she she was an observer of the moment, not a part of the moment. You, you mentioned them shooting the riots that followed the not guilty verdict for the police officers accused in the beating of Rodney King and that horrific scene where Reginald Denny, the truck driver, was assaulted while your parents hovered above it. You know, at the very, very end of your book in the acknowledgments, you kind of wanted to settle a score about the credit your mom did not get for her role that day. You want to tell us that? So I think this is really important. I'm so happy you're flagging this. My mom um, and my dad were both 
Los Angeles News Service. But my dad usually gets most of the credit because he had a much bigger personality and he was the face of it. But my mom shot all of the video, nearly all of the video. It's certainly the most iconic video, the most important video. And one of them was the Reginald Denny beating during the L.A. riots, where she was literally hanging over the skids over that um, news story and put herself in such danger that some of the guys on the street were shooting up at the helicopter. There were bullet holes in the battery beneath her seat. And I said, what if there wasn't a battery there to her recently? And she said, I don't know, I might have been fine. That's how gutsy she was. Yet, when my parents won... An Emmy for that footage, the Emmy had listed four names. None of them were hers. It was my dad, the news director, and a couple people on the desk. The men involved in this took my mother's name off of it because they couldn't fit more names. So they decided that it was more important to get the people back in the news station onto the award than it was to make sure the woman who shot it was on the award. So I want to set the record straight and say she shot that video and she deserves the credit. What are your memories of of the helicopter of those days? And did, did you go up in, in, in the bird? I did. And I went back up in a helicopter for the first time in 24 years a couple days ago. I had not been in one since my parents lost it. And It brought back all of the memories I had because the helicopter was really my home. It was the place I grew up. Yeah, we had a lot of – we rented houses and we moved a lot as a kid. But the one constant was this helicopter. And I felt more comfortable there than I felt in my own bed. So I would go up with my parents on news stories. I mean, when we were over the fires, I would feel the the flames burning the shins – my shins, on my legs. That's how close we would get. Um, We'd be, you know, zooming along highways watching police pursuits. And then oftentimes, uh, you know, we'd go up and go to Catalina for lunch (laughs) or go to Santa Barbara for lunch or go to San Francisco for the day. Um, Or I'd just hang out with them as as they scanned Los Angeles waiting for a news story. Did it scare you? I mean, either the height or the speed or or seeing these really adult things happening, like, you know, police chasing a speeding car and sometimes the endings were – could be gruesome. Nothing scared me. I loved the feeling of flight, the rush of it. I mean, and I remember some pretty gruesome stuff. I, I mean, I saw in real time – if I wasn't in the helicopter, I'd watch it. Uh, as it was unfolding, and I saw in real time a motorcyclist who was leading a, a pursuit get off the highway, and and I remember this vividly. And there was an intersection off the exit, and he blew through it and right into a a bus died. Um, I watched footage of cops shooting suspects to death on air, and in the moment, it didn't feel scary. I felt like I was special enough to handle it. Your dad was known for a lot of chutzpah, particularly when it came to, to getting access to any place that he wanted to shoot a video. And while we, he did a lot from the helicopters, he also did a lot on the ground. I thought we would listen to a bit of the documentary, which was made in 2020 about him, called Whirlybird by Matt Yoka. Um, 
a little bit of sort of his ability to get into these confrontations. The first we're going to hear is an officer uh, confronting your dad on an airport tarmac about him being there. And then we hear a clip of an interview years later after the transition. It's Zoe recalling the old days um, and the rage that she had then. And then we'll hear the conclusion of the confrontation at the airport. Let's listen. You need a permit. No, you right don't. Here. You need a permit. You're no, on you the taxiway. No, you don't. Now, either you do it or I call the law. Call and the you law. Take it off. Call the law. Okay? Because you're nothing but an imbecile. So I was uniquely built to challenge the other testosterone-driven ass. In many cases, those that wore badges. You know, you push me. I want to file hey, assault. Quit touching assault me. Battery. Did you get that? Did you get him hitting me? Break up. This is ridiculous. Wow, and that's your mom, Marika, there at the end of it. Yep. Calling police an imbecile. That's a, that's a way to get along, huh? <laughs> oh, my God. And, you know, when I first started in this business, I thought that that's just the way you, you pushed as a journalist. You, you try to get past police lines. You try to get closer for a shot. And I would get into these – I would try to get – or I'd get into these confrontations with the NYPD. And, and I quickly learned that that was not a good idea. And maybe I should adjust the way I went about things. Maybe my parents' example wasn't the best one. Yeah. Um, did you see these confrontations? Yes, I yeah. saw a lot of them. How much of that did you see at home? I saw a lot of it at home as well. My dad, um, and, and just a note about pronouns, um, when I'm talking about my memories of my father before she announced to me that she was transitioning, I use the pronoun he because I'm going in the past. Uh, when I talk about my father now or from 2013 on, from the moment she announced her transition to me, um, she is a she. And so I want to be clear about that and respectful. Um, it is in no way intending to to not show acceptance for who she is now um, and who she was originally as well. So uh, to be clear on that. But in terms of the confrontation that I witnessed at home – you know, it's hard to talk about, and and this is the sort of thing that I had been running from for a long time, and it's the sort of thing that I didn't even tell my husband because it it's ugly, and I and I I don't like going there. Um, I also don't love the identifier that comes with it, a victim, and I know my mom doesn't like it either. So it, it's hard to go there because of. You know all of the all of the stuff that comes with it, and all of the hurt that's there, both for us and all of the hurt that it will show the world. Um, but uh, with that out of the way, I'll tell you that I, um, you know, I saw my dad physically and verbally abuse my mom for a long time, and emotionally, and some of that spilled over to me and my brother as well. Certainly the emotional and the verbal abuse and occasionally the physical abuse. And for a lot of my life, it felt like that's just the way a family interacted. This is the way a marriage worked. If you're yelling and you're fighting, it means you have emotion. It means you care. 
Katie Turr is a correspondent for NBC News and anchor of Katie Turr Reports, which airs at 2 p.m. weekdays on MSNBC. Her new book is Rough Draft, a memoir. She'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. We're speaking with NBC News correspondent and MSNBC anchor Katie Turr. She's written a new memoir about her childhood, family relationships, and professional career. She grew up around cameras and microphones. Her parents ran a breaking news service in Los Angeles, often getting big scoops shooting video from the helicopter her dad piloted. Turr writes a lot about her relationship with her father, who she says was talented and charismatic, but also at times abusive to his family. In 2013, her dad transitioned from male to female. She's now Zoe Turr. Katie Turr's new book is Rough Draft, a memoir. You were uh, covering the Boston Marathon bombing in April of 2013 uh, in a hotel, as you write it, uh, exhausted, but things were still happening because the you know the suspects were still at large. Then the phone rings. It's your dad with some very big personal news. What happened? So it was late at night, I think around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, and I'm watching local news in my hotel room. It's the first time I'd been inside all day. I'm eating a cheeseburger. It's the first meal I have had that wasn't in a plastic wrapper. I'd been tethered to a live shot for countless hours. And I get a call from my dad. And, and as I said, up to this point, our relationship was strained. It was difficult. It was hard. And you never knew if it was going to be a good conversation or a bad conversation. And my dad's calling. And I remember thinking, do I have the energy for this right now? And I decided I did. I hadn't heard from him, and I thought maybe he was calling to say, like, you're on a crazy big national story. Let's talk about it. But instead, it was a it was a completely different call. And this is where pronouns are going to get shaky, so I'll, I'll, I'll switch. But he says to me, Katie, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah. And he said, I have something big to tell you. And I said, okay. Um, and he said, I'm becoming a woman. And I remember in the moment, I thought he, because I'm still thinking he at this point, was joking <laughs> because it's felt very out of left field. And I said, are you kidding? Are you serious? And he said, serious is a heart attack. And in that moment, I didn't really know what to make of it because it felt out of the blue. It was on the phone. I didn't have any cultural touchstones to guide me. This wasn't a part of the national dialogue yet. It was going to be pretty soon, but it wasn't yet. And I I remember getting very emotional because I didn't really know how to process it. And we go through the conversation. Yes, I'm serious. Yes, this is going to happen. Um, can I still call you dad? Yes, you can still call me dad. Of course, I'm always going to be your father, no matter what. Um how does it work? What do you do? Do you have to go to therapy? Do you, like, what's the process? And then he, she said something that stuck with me, and that was the, don't you see how good this is going to be? This is, this is why I've been so angry. I won't be so angry anymore. I already don't feel as angry. And I remember thinking, oh, uh, oh, okay, um, Let's talk about that anger. You want to clean the slate, let's clean it. And I took it as an opening. 
And I got the guts to say, well, okay, let's talk about that rage. Let's talk about that anger. Reading the account, one of the things that's interesting about this is that some of what you would learn would be from her appearances and contacts with the media, like talking about the the transition on TMZ and her saying that people in her family are mourning. That must have been odd. Uh, yeah, she said, Bob Turr is dead. And I said, wait, hold on, Bob Turr, my father? <laughs> and yeah, Bob Turr is dead and gone. And we don't even need to talk about any of this because Bob Turr is gone. It's over. And I, I remember thinking, Bob Turr is my dad. And it's not over for me. You know, she she would talk about how her emotions were softer now. I mean, she was different. And you, you describe this a meeting in a Mexican restaurant where she says, you know, this violence in her past is gone. It's it's fixed because you know the hormones are different and the emotions. And, and she are was being you, her. She was her true self, and all of the anger that she experienced was because she couldn't be who she was. And and I have I have incredible sympathy. For how hard that must be to be to be living a lie your entire life, and not being not feeling like you're allowed to be who you are. But we had, I mean, you're talking about the Mexican restaurant, so I'll tell you about it. Um, so after the conversation in Boston, it ended well, even though it had a few tense moments trying to, for me with me trying to talk about the violence and my dad not wanting to. Um, and so we agreed to meet. I was in town a few months later covering another story and the day before I landed or the day I landed one of the two um, my dad started coming out to the world and she gave an interview to TMZ talking about the transition and bringing me up in it and talking about how I was dealing with it and I remember thinking oh my gosh you're, you're really just going to do this all out there um, without first coming to any of us and saying here's what I'm planning in terms of talking publicly about it. And that's fine. You don't have to. I'm certainly not required to run things by your adult daughter. Um, So we sat down for this conversation at the Mexican restaurant, and it was tense again because I was there to talk about the anger and and to try and come to a, a place of peace, to find some closure with it. And my dad didn't want to talk about it. Felt like I wasn't being fair. Felt like I should just forget it because she was forgetting it. It was all in the past. And I remember bringing it up, and immediately she just starts looking at her plate and messing around with her guacamole and just not looking at me and and getting silent. And this is one of the ways that she would deal with us growing up and my mom would she just get silent and it would just be so awful and I, I said we can we talk about this can we get to the rage because Bob Turr did some pretty terrible things and I understand you don't want to be Bob Turr anymore but we got to talk about what Bob Turr did and we just couldn't have the conversation we had it felt like minutes after we sat down before we even had ordered she looked at me and she said, you're disgusting. I never want to see you again. And she got up and left. And that was the last time that I sat face to face with her. It was 10 years ago. She subsequently kind of characterized your reaction in stories um, in the LA Times and the New York Times. What did, what did she say? She 
said that I was mourning, that I wasn't dealing with it well. She did a Facebook post that called me transphobic. It's like she was attacking me in in, in public because we weren't talking in private. And I, I was really hurt by it. I was really. She said that I was upset because the transition was hurting my career, and all I cared about was my career. And I just remember, I would shut off. I would avoid reading it. I would have my husband or my mom read it for me and tell me what I needed to know, because I was so. I felt so wounded by my father. Instead of calling me, calling me names in public, and it 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 broke something in our relationship that I've tried we've I've tried to repair, but I don't know if you can repair that. I want to play one more clip from the film, the documentary about your parents, Whirly Bird, and it's a moment when. Your dad, I mean Zoe, is reflecting on some of the harmful things she she did before she transitioned and says she was abused and abused kids often abuse and well let's let's listen again. This is Zoe Turr talking about her past. You know, abused children become abusers. And rarely do they get broken of it. And I worked as hard as I can humanly do work trying to rid myself of rage. Fortunately, it's what kept me alive. It, it made me a, a very good news person. It made me a terrible, a terrible uh, partner. It made me a terrible husband. I could have been a much better husband. I regret, I regret, I regret every single day some of the despicable things that I've done. That's Zoe Turr speaking um, the documentary, Whirly Bird. You know, I saw that after I had read your book. And what struck me about hearing that, and, and remember this was 2020, I mean some years after the transition and after you and she had had this difficult relationship. And it struck me that in an interview at a camera, she can express regret. She can express sorrow. Why couldn't she face to face with you? Do you think? Do you feel like you understand that? I don't understand that. Understand that. And it was, you know, I watched that documentary in early 2020, right before the pandemic hit, and I remember I cried a lot at the end of it because I felt like all of the things that she said again to that camera were things that I had been trying to get her to say to me. And it was hard. Be, and it, in one respect, it was helpful to hear. And in another, it was hurtful because, again, it wasn't to me. And I wondered how much, how much of it she meant, I guess. Well, the book will, will be out. She will read it. Um, do you have any particular hopes or expectations? I mean, did you sending her a copy? I have not sent her a copy. Um, I don't know what to expect. The ugly answer is I'm not sure that I want a relationship. And I'm going I'm working through this in real time as I'm talking about the book. Um I have great memories of my dad and I want to hold on to those great memories. 
I don't know what a relationship looks like. I'm not sure that she wants one. Um, and it's hard. You know, obviously, it's 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 crappy. My I I've got two beautiful kids, four in total. Um, two of whom of whom are, are, are her grandkids, biologically speaking, and she would love them, and they would love her. And I wish I could bring them up in a helicopter that my dad was flying. <laughs> You know, I, I wish that I could give them that experience. I, I could give them all of that fun and that family history. And I'm sad that I don't. I'm sad that she's missing out on on this stuff. I just don't, I don't know. I don't know if we can come back from any of this. You know, um, getting back to your career, you know, after you became a foreign correspondent based in London and covered lots of stuff in Europe and then ended up kind of by a turn of fate, covering Donald Trump in 2015, which you stayed with through the 2016 election. And people can hear all about that and read about it in your first book or listen to Terry Gross's great interview with you um, from that book. We won't go into it here. But, you know, it's interesting that when I read in your new book about your relationship with your father, I wondered if in some way dealing with that experience helped prepare you for dealing with Donald Trump? It definitely did. Um, And, you know, my dad and Donald Trump have similar personality types. I'm not saying that they are the same person. I'm not saying that they have the same thoughts or advocate for the same things. Not at all. But personality types, and this is bombastic and um, magnetic and funny and volatile and sometimes scary and angry, all of that rolled into one. Um, and so when when Donald Trump would come at me, um, either in a vicious way or in a, a friendly way, in a bantery way, I, I just knew how to parry that shot. I knew how to deal with it. I knew how to stand up to him. I knew how to speak to him. And that was because I grew up um, speaking to a similar personality type. They are not the same person. I write in the book very clearly they are not the same person. Um, but if they were asking, I would recommend the same therapist. Well, Katie Turr, thanks so much for speaking with us again. It's been fun. Dave, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Katie Turr is a correspondent for NBC News and anchor of Katie Turr Reports, which airs at 2 p.m. weekdays on MSNBC. Her new book is Rough Draft, a Memoir. Coming up, we'll talk about why black people in the U.S. have poorer health outcomes than whites with journalist Linda Villarosa. Her new book is Under the Skin, the hidden toll of racism on American lives and on the health of our nation. This is Fresh Air Weekend. It's no secret there are problems with health care in America, and it's no surprise that black people have poorer health outcomes in the United States than whites, given disparities in income, wealth, and insurance coverage. Our guest, Linda Villarosa, is an author and journalist who's been writing about the intersection of race and health for years. She says for a long time she thought poverty was the explanation for why blacks were less healthy than whites. But over time, her thinking has changed. She now believes something else is making black people sicker, and that something is racism. In a new book, she argues that while poverty certainly matters in health, studies show that black people suffer long-term health effects from the daily stress of living in a racist society, and that the healthcare system itself is infected with racial bias among providers, administrators, and policymakers. Linda Villarosa is a journalism professor at the City University of New York, the author of two previous books, and a contributor to the 1619 Project.
Her writing on race and health has appeared in the New York Times Magazine since 2017. Her new book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. Well, Linda Villarosa, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. You know, this book is, a lot of it is about studies and your own research and reporting. You also draw on your own experience as a black woman. Uh, When your family moved to Denver, you were in a predominantly black community in the south side of Chicago. When you moved to Denver, how much overt racism did you experience? Oh, the racism was overt in some instances. So when we moved there, we were drive. My family was driving up to our new home, and we were so excited to get. My sister and I were really happy to get our own rooms. And then, as my parents drove up, our car was packed with all of our stuff from Chicago, and one of the neighbors had written in word "Go home" on the garage. So that was our welcome to the community. Um, When I first started, I started in third grade at my elementary school, and I realized that none of the children were talking to me. And eventually, one of my classmates told me, well, before you came, we had a assembly with all the kids in the school, and they said, you're getting your first black children. That was my sister and me. And so um, they said, be careful about what you say to them, because you might say the wrong thing or hurt their feelings. So the other kids were so scared to say the wrong thing that no one talked to me for probably a, a month or more. And I just thought no one liked me. So eventually, you know, I smoothed that out. But it was a really um, difficult way to start in a new community. Yeah. I mean, part of what we'll talk about deals with the effect of the daily stress of living in a racist world. That's something that, you know, you from a kid's age really had to, had to deal with. Um, I also think of my parents, the strain that they both had to try to cover it up um, to me and my sister because we were so young and they, this was such, supposed to be such a happy moment. So I know it was really stressful for them to try to make it okay for us. Right. In the mid-80s, you became a contributing nutrition and fitness writer for Essence Magazine, and you said your mission was to fix the health crisis in black America. Um, what did you see as the problem? Well, the, the problem was very clear. So it was clear that there were racial health disparities, so that black Americans had higher rates of so-called lifestyle diseases, is what we called them then, and it was heart disease, diabetes, stroke, asthma, things that were considered shouldn't make people that ill and certainly shouldn't be deadly. And so we knew that, but we just didn't understand the cause, exactly why this was happening. And so the explanation was, it's our own fault. So either that it was something about our genetic makeup that was making us more sick and also lower life expectancy, higher rates of infant mortality, or it was something we were doing wrong. So at Essence, the idea was, well, we can fix racial health um, inequality by just getting all the people in our magazine, because those are the people we had access to, to just do better. And what we said is, if you know better, you do better. So make smarter choices about nutrition, about health, all of that stuff, smoking, drinking, all of that. Um, Exercise, yes. Yeah. I mean, poverty surely had to figure into all of this too, right? I mean, people that don't have, you know, it's harder for them to take care of themselves. They have less access to the medical system, right? That is certainly right. 
Um, but the people at Essence, the readership of Essence was more made of striving Black people. So it was sort of more of a middle-class magazine. So although we were discussing poverty and discussing you know, marginalized lives, we were mostly talking to a middle-class group of women to say, well, make sure that you're really taking good care of yourself and also taking care of the people in your family and also taking care of the people in your church and in your community. So in some ways, we were, you know, we didn't realize it at the time, but we were really burdening people to say, oh, you have to take care of everyone, including yourself, to make all Black people healthier and have better well-being as a race. Right. You write that you met a surgeon at Harlem Hospital who'd written an article in the New England Journal about racial disparities in health. He changed your thinking some? And that was Dr. Harold Freeman. And he is a magnificent, really smart, hardworking, thoughtful person who had a research study in the New England Journal of Medicine. And he looked at the health of men in Harlem and compared them to men in the impoverished country of Bangladesh. And it turned out that black men in Harlem lived fewer years than men in Bangladesh. And it was shocking. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine. So he came to speak to my uh, class at the Harvard School of Public Health, my fellowship class. And I was so interested in everything he had to say. I was all over him. And I was insisting to him that this is a problem of poverty. And one thing he said to me was, wait a minute, look at the population of Harlem. The population of Harlem isn't all impoverished, one. So if you are thinking that the health problems of Black people in America are only because of poverty, you're making a mistake and you're, all your thinking is going to be wrong. And what I learned from him is if you're looking at the problem through the wrong lens, you're coming up with incorrect and ineffective solutions. You know, you note that there have been a lot of medical myths about black people, um, some held by such presumably rational thinkers as Thomas Jefferson, that black bodies were different from white bodies. What are some examples of this? I think the one that really struck me, and I covered this um, in my reporting for the 1619 Project, was the idea that black people have an extreme tolerance to pain, almost a superpower against pain. And that myth started during the years of enslavement, and it was pushed by doctors and scientists at the time who also had a hand in keeping slavery intact. So the idea that if Black people had extreme tolerance to pain, that you could hurt our bodies, you could beat us, whip us, take our children away, and work us from sunset to sundown, and it wouldn't matter. So that was started during enslavement. And what I learned was that myth was pushed using evidence in data, in medical journals, so then fast forward for me to 2016, and it was a study out of the University of Virginia that looked at myths that medical students still believed. And it looked at 220 white medical students, and over um, a third of them, about 40% of them, believed at least one myth about the black body, including the idea that black people have a different kind of pain tolerance. This was 2016, so I looked at more recent data. This was about a year ago. It was a look at cesarean sections, clearly major surgery. But again, medical students and residents thought that Black women did not need as much pain management during a C-section as white women, even when you know everything else was the same. That is alarming because those are the future doctors of America. And so that means that we need to do things differently here. 
Yeah, I have to say that's shocking that you'd hear that in 2016. And other myths were like that black skin is thicker than white skin. Certainly that is a myth. That's not true. Skin comes in all degrees of thickness. But if you believe that, it sort of speaks to a kind of a false invulnerability that Black people have that would allow us to not have our pain treated in the same way. Um, You reported a story in 2018 called Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life or Death Crisis. And you you write about several black women who were pregnant and had babies. And in in all cases, women who were educated, financially stable, had good health insurance and healthy lifestyles, who experienced complications with pregnancies and births. (laughs) One of these people was you, but I guess that's a different story maybe. Tell us what you found. I was really intrigued by this story in the first place because of a statistic that I heard. And the first stat, and I heard this while I was playing soccer on a weekend from a woman who was a lawyer for, um, she was an international lawyer, and she was telling me, she said, did you know that the United States is the only country where the number of women who die or almost die in childbirth is going up? So I said, oh, no, I didn't know that. Then she said, it's driven by black women, because black women are three to four times more likely to die or almost die. So I was still under the impression, even in 2017, that this was an issue of poverty. So I was arguing with her. And then she stopped me cold because she said, education is not protective. So if you're a black woman with a master's degree or more, you are still more likely to die or almost die than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So that struck me. It also struck me that I had had a low birth weight baby, which was really unusual for someone in that I was so healthy. I was working as the health editor of Essence Magazine. I was in a public figure as a healthy person trying to do everything right. And then I had this low birth weight baby. I've heard so many other stories from other black women including Serena Williams, who had a difficult birth. And then even my book is reviewed in the New York Times book review. And the reviewer herself, when talking about my book, discussed her own difficult pregnancy. Hmm. And so this is just so widespread. And I think that my article struck a chord for people who had been experiencing this, but never heard it discussed. Now, one explanation might be getting bad treatment from the healthcare system, but as you looked into this, you discovered there are other explanations. What did you find? I met Dr. Arlene Geronimus, who is a public health professor and researcher at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And she told me about her theory of weathering. So weathering is the idea that something about the lived experience is bad for the body and creates a kind of premature or accelerated aging. And I love the word weathering because it's twofold. So it's the same way that a storm weathers a house and it knocks the paint off, it takes the shingles off the roof, pulls down the shutters, but also a house weathers the storm. Right. And one of the things that I think that or some other research showed that black teenage girls actually had healthier pregnancies than black women in their 20s. I guess the idea being with time— Racism takes a toll on the body. And when Dr. Geronimus first talked about that finding, 
that she had. She was ridiculed. People were cruel to her. They threatened her because they thought she was encouraging teen pregnancy. But what she was doing was really reporting on evidence to say older Black women have had a longer and harder time in America, and it's taken a greater toll on their bodies and created a kind of accelerated aging. And it took her a really long time to get the respect that she deserves. It's interesting because now when COVID happened, people reached out to her because they started saying, oh, maybe this is part of the reason that Black people have worse COVID outcomes because of this kind of accelerated aging. The other thing that happens with COVID is um, Black people got worse outcomes at younger ages than white people and some other people of color. And so people really started to listen to Dr. Geronimus. You know, we've all heard the phrase when talking about research that correlation is not causation. I mean, the things that that the fact fact that two conditions are associated doesn't mean that one causes the other. What do we know about kind of how racism might affect the bodies of black people? And is there anything that tells us that people who have had harder experiences in race relations um, suffer these health effects worse? So when Dr. Geronimus was working, in the early part of her career, she had so much pushback that she started doing her scientific research changed. And so she started looking at the physical effects, like what exactly happens to the body when you're treated poorly. What she found was what happens during fight or flight. So your heart rate goes up, your cortisol stress levels go up in your body, your blood pressure rises. So this makes sense if you're in a fight or flight situation, but it doesn't make sense if it's happening day in, day out. It's not good for the body. It's not good to get your heart rate up so high all the time. It's not good to get your cortisol levels to go up. It's definitely not good to have your blood pressure going up all the time. But when people are treated badly, that's what happens. And I was thinking of the case of one of my former students who was telling me about, he said, racism isn't a thing for me. He was telling me, he's from the South Bronx. And I said, really, it's never happened? And he said, no. And I said, really, you've never had a time, you're a young black man in the South Bronx, you've never had a run-in with the police? He said, oh, yeah, I had one recently. I said, tell me about it. And he said, he was going um, to, he and another guy, they were going on a date with two young women and they were walking to go get pizza. Police cars came up to them. They threw them against the police car, handcuffed them, had their guns out, and accused them of being involved in a robbery. The young women were taking video of what happened. So then in about, I don't know, 40 minutes, they figured out, oh, we've got the wrong guy. Sorry. And they let them go. And I said, wait, why did you not say that that was an instance of racism that happened to you? He said, oh, that's, I don't consider that racism. That's just my daily life. That's my every day. And I th started thinking about him. And I thought, if that is his every day, he is not at all moved by being treated that badly all the time because he's just accepted it. What is that doing to that young guy's body? Mm. Uh there's a lot here, and a lot of it's pretty distressing, I mean, to see these disparities that persist. Um, how optimistic or pessimistic are you that, that we can make progress? I'm always very optimistic, and sometimes it doesn't make sense, but I feel very optimistic. I feel energized by medical students wanting to make a difference. 
I feel happy about the commitment of people like community health workers, patient navigators, people who are putting kindness and care into healthcare. I feel excited by what has happened in the past two years. I remember when I would do panels that were talking about race and medicine, um, we were very careful not to say racism because it was hard. I didn't want to hurt people. I thought people who are going into health and healthcare and public health, it's unkind to accuse them of being racist. And now I realize it's not. We're not accusing individuals of being racist, but we're saying there is something wrong with what is happening in America, the experience of health and healthcare in America for Black people and other people of color and other marginalized people. And we can name it. So now it's common to go to a panel that's called Racism as a Public Health Threat, whereas even two years ago, we were kind of tiptoeing around that. I think when you identify the problem, when you discuss the problem, it's easier to address the problem and come up with solutions than it is when you're pretending like it doesn't exist. Well, Linda Villarosa, thank you so much for speaking with us again. Thank you. It's good to be here. Linda Villarosa's new book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. We had additional help this week from Adam Staniszewski. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. 